Hey everyone, I'm Mar Bell, Editor-in-Chief of Director's Notes, and as promised last episode, I'm here to bring you the first of our series of podcast interviews from the 61st BFI London Film Festival. Jumping at the opportunity to catch up with DN alumni co-directors Rob Curry and Tim Plester, who previously joined us on the podcast to discuss Tempest and Way of the Morris respectively, we take a deep dive into the creation of their new feature, The Ballad of Shirley Collins, a lyrical documentary about the 20th century's most important singer of English traditional song and her battle to rise again from long silent ashes after losing the ability to sing in the prime of her career over 40 years ago. So finally, at long last and in person, <laughs> I'm getting to sit down with Tim and Rob. Welcome to Director's Notes. Oh, finally. Yeah. Been a while. Lovely to be here. Now, both of you who've been on the show before, looking at my notes because my memory doesn't work that well, um, the last podcast, um, Way of the Morris, which you both um, co-directed together, but only Tim was on the podcast for in South by Southwest was 2011. And yes. then Rob, obviously, I spoke to you in 2012 about um, Tempest. So an obvious question is, what have you been up to in the time in between? I know that The Ballad of Shirley Collins took about four years end to end to create, but what other projects have been taking up your time? Since Way of the Morris, you know, it wasn't long after that that we started working on Shirley Collins' film, really. I mean, once the film had played out and done its festival circuit, it was probably 2012. Yeah, And then we made a short film in between called Here We Unbe Together, that played at London Film Festival two years ago, three years ago? I think it was 2014, yeah. So that kind of, yeah, that kind of filled the gap in between. But I think we already started working on Shirley when we were making that. I can't really remember. But there's definitely a continuity in the work in the way the Morris deals with uh, Morris dancing and kind of is the beginning of our foray into English folk customs and traditions. Here We and Me Together is a short film about even less than, well, some people don't know about Morris dancing, but very few people know about Dwyle flonking, yeah. which, is what, um, which is what Here We and Be Together is about, kind <coughs> of, but not really. Mm-hmm. And then both of those kind of flow then into film about Shirley Collins, which we, yeah, we're here with. Because I'm trying to remember, because we, we showed Here We and Be Together at the Kickstarter campaign for The Ballad of Shirley Collins, which I believe was in 2014. But I think we, we weren't allowed it. to say. Yeah, I think yeah. we weren't allowed to Announce tell it. anyone yeah. because it was playing at London Film Festival. Right, so, yeah, yeah. so basically, we'd finished filming on that, yes. and it was ready to go. But then, yes, it was basically straight off the back. The Shirley film had already started. It was, like, you know. And you made the Tempest in between. Yeah. So, so well, I mean, Way of the Morris sort of changed everything for both of us. Tempest was a film I was making before that, mm-hmm. but basically, Way of the Morris, getting in South by Southwest, and then for some inexplicable reason for a 64 minute documentary about Morris dancing getting like you know a fairly sizable UK theatrical release just basically changed everything for us you know and sort of off the back of that we kind of learned how to self-distribute a film so that's played in about 40 cinemas and loads of kind of folk clubs and stuff like that and then got bought by Sky Arts all of which basically we did ourselves it does quite well on the DVD market as well if people are struggling for the a, a Christmas present for your weird uncle. <laughs> uh, the, way yeah, of the Morris still, often, yeah. We still get mark. a Christmas spike. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really, yeah. But so then this other film that I've been making with someone else that we both work with called Anthony Fletcher, we applied that model to The Tempest, which is a slightly different film. We kind of, it was made as a, it was not as a commercial film, but as a film for adults, but it basically played 
best to kids' audiences and to educators mm -hmm. kind of thing. So it, it mainly did that. It was another film that we self-distributed, but that was five years ago now. And here we are again. We probably didn't think we'd be self-distributing this one, but we are. But it's taken up a whole notch. We've got like way more cinemas, much longer runs. You know, I think partly off the back of Shirley's story being something that, you know, it's a very hard sell to convince people who think they don't like Morris dancing to reevaluate it kind of thing. Yeah. But with Shirley, you've got like a core story of a, a singer who's lost their voice, you know. There's like a universal tragedy almost at the, at the, at the centre of it, with a happy ending tacked on as well, mm -hmm. that, you know, makes it, I think, much easier to get out to a wider audience. Plus, you know, it helps that she's just had a hugely successful album out. Yeah, I'm, you know, quite into music, but folk isn't one of my areas, so I had no idea who she was until watching your documentary. But it's not just that she is a outstanding folk singer, she's really, really important given the facts of the field recordings that she did. So could you tell us a little bit more about that? Shirley Collins is to traditional English music what bone marrow is to the flow of blood around your body in that she is um, essential and rooted in the very bones of it. She's regarded pretty much as the quintessential English folk singer of the 20th century. And that's based on her output, most of it, not all of it, with her sister Dolly. And this was during the 60s and 70s. But she has this kind of, kind of bigger importance and puts her importance beyond these shores. In, the, in 1959, she went on a, a song-collecting field trip with the ethnomusicologist uh, Alan Lomax, who more people have heard of than have heard of Shirley Collins. And Lomax was pioneering the recording of music in people's homes using you know, the latest stereo recording equipment mm -hmm. and the latest microphones. And it was at a time when people were, you know, there was big changes going on in the world. And there were people like Lomax who were traveling around trying to capture these old traditions that were in, in danger of, uh, of dying out mm -hmm. um, and getting them down on tape. And, and Shirley had met Lomax in the London folk music scene in the 50s, they'd fallen in love and then she went along on this trip with him in 1959, masquerading as his secretary, and he was 10, 15 years older than her? 20, I think. 20 years older than her. It's interesting, because I grew up in a household where people listen to folk music, so I've, I've known who Shirley Collins is for most of my life, but I've spent most of my life running away from my folk music um, origins. I'm going to be saying that way with the Morris. It's the same thing with the Morris dancing. But both me and Rob were really big fans of the Lomax archive, which people who don't know who Lomax is, they might know the film, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, Coen Brothers film. The music in that film is inspired by that trip that they took in 1959. It is the music from that trip, largely. Yes, you know. yeah. neither of us knew that Shirley Collins had been part of that trip, well, until we were asked to make this Yeah, because this, film. this project, it wasn't one that you self-initiated, you were approached. Yeah, which is the first time that's ever happened to us, or at least the first time that we have done anything that anyone's approached us about. Yeah, basically a, a music promoter who was putting on a tour of Shirley's talks, because in the 20 years that she, 20, 40 years that she wasn't singing. 40 years. Yeah. Almost <laughs> so 40 years. It's hard to think, you know, someone could have spent most of their life doing something and then still spent 40 years not doing it, <laughs> you know. <laughs> During that period, she'd started kind of coming back into the public eye and she was doing kind of talks about her life and this America trip mm -hmm. and about English folk music and about gypsy music and Sussex music. And he talked to a film producer that we know who 
then said, oh, I know a couple of guys who's made a film about Morris dancing, maybe they'll know who she is, kind of thing, because he didn't know who she was. And he approached us, and Shirley had actually approached him a couple of times at folk festivals, sort of, because she'd seen where the Morris yeah. was a massive fan, so we thought, well, there's definitely something here. No idea what the story is, or what the film would be, but let's meet her. Mm -hmm. So we met her, and that's when I found out about the America trip, you know, and then I sort of put two and two together, and like, all this music that I had at home that was the music that got me into folk music, you know, because I, I didn't listen to folk music as a kid. I'm sort of the opposite of Tim. I grew up in London. I suppose I had a bit of kind of folk influence because I grew up in a really Irish area of London, you know, and they don't have the same sort of ambivalence or, or hatred of their folk traditions that the English have. <laughs> but basically, I like punk music and, and hip hop, not folk. The Pogues was about as close as I got to <laughs> right. folk, Well, you know, know yeah. And so I came across this music while I was researching something, trying to find the music would have been playing in America in the 18th century. Um, and I came across all this stuff, and I was like, this is absolutely fucking amazing. And it opened up a whole new world to me, really. And then suddenly, here's this woman, this young English woman, who'd been on the trip collecting all that music. And it was like, well, OK, we have to make this film. But still, what is the core of the story? And the core of the story is, well, this is like someone who's been living without the thing that they love without the thing that defines them for 40 years. So there's something to explore there, you know? Yeah, but so because actually, I don't think we've mentioned, but so what is it that stopped Shirley from singing for all those years? Well, she was diagnosed with a condition called uh, dysphonia, which affects the, the vocal cords. But it's, it's an interesting one, because if you look dysphonia up, it's not really, there are those who dispute whether it's actually real or not. And Shirley herself has never described it as no. dysphonia. It's only been other people who've described it as such. Yeah, so whoever wrote her Wikipedia entry basically <laughs> right. decided that, I think, you know. But it's, you know, it's very difficult. Someone physically can't get on stage and sing. Mm -hmm. What do you call that? Yeah. You know? So part of the process of the film was unravelling that and unravelling what that was. And, and that would have been a, a much bigger focus of the film than it is if, during the process of making the film, she hadn't decided that she was going to try and sing again. Yeah, because obviously know. you didn't know that at the outset. Were you around at the time that she made that decision? What prompted her to take a move? Because as well, we see in the film, we see her being hesitant, and we see her doing those recordings, and even though she's allowed you into her life to tell this um, documentary of her past, she's clearly nervous about singing again, and then her doing that again in front of your camera. So at least if she's just singing and it's with the band, they could take the best takes, yeah. but you're showing her hesitant moves in there. So I'm curious as to about her willingness to allow you into that. That's a very fragile space. It wasn't easy, was it? It was not something she really wanted us to, no. to do, she, understandably. She, yeah, I mean, she's very aware, because that's the other thing, you know, our previous films have been about fruit and veg sellers or Morris dancers, you know, kids putting on a youth theatre production or, or whatever, you know, but these are not people who are media savvy and who have like their image and their brand, if you like, you know, very clearly developed already kind of thing, you know, and Shirley is, is you know, she's 82, she wishes this film had been made when she was 40, she hates seeing herself on camera because it just, it's a constant reminder that she's not 20 yeah. anymore. So the first thing we had to do, way before we got to that, you know, to, to actually kind of letting us into the recording sessions, was just getting her to relax on camera and not present the public persona of Shirley Collins. It's a beautiful thing, the public persona of Shirley Collins, and it's a fantastic thing to take with us to Q&As, etc., because she's just absolutely on the money every time. She, you know, nails every punchline or whatever. But it's no use for making a film, mm -hmm. that persona, you know. If you want to kind of get 
into what makes someone tick and why they're important. You have to get the vulnerability, you know, you have to get behind that. that We've never really had that challenge before, no, never, have we? Never. Um, about, you know, trying to get behind the mask of somebody. We ended up describing it as a kind of, there was a Rolodex of anecdotes that Shirley had, and if you asked a certain question, you could almost see the eyes kind of flick backwards, <laughs> grab that one, and then repeat it. So a lot of the key questions, like, you know, why did you lose your voice? She's answered that question before, but we'd heard her answer it in the same way several times. We wanted to try and kind of short circuit that and find a way to get beyond it and find a new way or maybe a more honest way of of her answering that question. So one of the key things that paid off for us in the end, it was an experiment really, we didn't really know if it was going to work, is to not shoot the film with us as asking questions from behind a camera and pointing the camera in her face, but to have situations where she was a bit more relaxed and having conversations with people and thus in the film Stuart Lee, comedian David Michael Tibet, the avant-garde musician two folk musicians, Sam Amadon and Al Osborne and the key one, Doctor being the key word, Doctor Tully who's a psychiatrist Uh, and that was really the key one in terms of getting Shirley to open up about losing her voice and we filmed that in a church, amazing church in the Romney Marshes it's a place that Shirley went to as a child. A lot, a lot of the, lo- in fact, all, probably all the yeah. locations in the film are places that Shirley had spoken to us about with some kind of fondness. Mm-hmm. And that over the course of the making of the film, we were able to find reasons to go and film in those locations because they were so reflective of, of Shirley and her, her being and where she comes from and why she sings these songs and how connected she is to that landscape and how connected a lot of the songs are as well. But there was something interesting about the church as well because it kind of lends it a confessional quality as well. And then there's a psychiatrist in there talking to her who she'd never met before. And it just paid evidence. How did you present that to her? Well, I mean, like like I said, before she was going to sing, there was going to be a lot more of that. We were going to do like MRI scans and, you know, go into Imperial College and and have her sit down with experts and and discuss it, you know, discuss it much more from the point of view of what's wrong with me, you know, sort of almost go on a quest to find out what was wrong and see if there was anything that could be done about it. It's very late in the day, but, you know, but she sort of then... I think maybe even because we were threatening that, decided <laughs> to go on that journey for herself, you know. It was from the very beginning, you know, we, this was the heart of what it was that we needed to get to, you know. And there was a time when we were going to expand it out, and there's a very strange sort of, there were a lot of women in the 1970s folk scene who, who either literally or metaphorically were silenced mm-hmm. by their interaction with that scene. So there was a point where we were going to open it out and bring in the other women that that applies to, people like Linda Thompson, Anne Briggs, Vashti Bunyan, you know, and find out whether there was something in that scene that had caused that, you know, rather than it being a very bizarre coincidence. But, you know, then this happens kind of thing, you know, and then we just could follow her on a journey, which was a different thing. But, yeah, it was right at the end, the album recording, and she was very, very, very resistant to it. And once we'd have been in for one day, she was even more resistant to it. And there was a point where we thought we might not actually, even though she completely trusted us, she was totally used to us, there was a point where we thought we might not get another session. And we kind of had to just force yeah. the issue and go, look, you have to let us do this, Shirley. Because the other musicians didn't really want us there either. Right. You know, because it was all in her, it's in her living room. Yeah. You know, it's a field recording in her living room, basically, is what they were doing, you know. And then to fit in four crew, as well as you know, the studio and all the instruments and all the musicians as well. It was just, 
yeah, just practically it was too much. But also, it's just what you said, you know, no one's ever really kind of enunciated it before or whatever. But yeah, it's the fact that it's not her best takes, yeah. you know, and she knows that on some level. And that on some level, they were distracted from recording, even though we were completely unintrusive, as unintrusive as it was possible for us to be. You know, the fact that we were there, they knew they were being filmed, and if a camera's pointing at them while they're playing, they freeze up a little bit. Yeah. You know? Well, that studio stuff, that's kind of when you're experimenting and just throwing out anything, yeah. isn't it? It's not yeah, you're on yeah. stage doing your best, this is the home yeah, performance, yeah, yeah. really. Yeah, so. exactly, yeah. yeah exactly. I mean, it's almost like, you know, making a film and, and somebody just putting your rushes <laughs> yeah. on screen and going, how? Oh, I haven't edited that yet. Yeah. I'm sorry, yeah. everyone's seen it. Yeah. You know, I think, basically, you know, at the bottom line, there was trust there. And I think there is one scene right at the beginning where we do show her singing pretty badly, mm -hmm. mainly just from a quite a crude filmmaking point of view that, you know, you've got to show the journey she went on, but also because there is some truth in it, you know? It's like no one knew until the end of the process whether she'd actually finish it. Yeah, because that album I mean? was pretty well lauded. I saw it yeah, yeah, five it, stars in the Guardian. Yeah, it was really, really, really well received. Yeah, really, yeah, really, really well received. Well received. Yeah. I mean, it's an incredible album, and you know, it never it doesn't get talked about, but the musical director of the album, has you know a huge role to play in that guy called Ian Keary, who basically is they're almost like a duo really now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it was not the easiest part of the process. But that's making a documentary, you know. And, and when you're making a documentary about someone with status, it's even harder. I mean, we had the same thing with Weather Morris on a number of levels. People wanting the film to be about, about this, one thing or you know go that. one way kind of thing but when you've got someone with status they have record labels and publishing companies and managers and family members who all want a piece of the action and want a say in what it is you're going to do kind of yeah. thing so it's part of the job mm -hmm. you know yeah. so we had to make sure we got that because we needed it for the film yeah you know and at the end of the day if we didn't get it, the film wouldn't have had the same level of attention because it wouldn't have been good enough. Yeah. You know, so we owe it to her in a way to make her do it, even though she doesn't want to. Yeah. You know, there's yeah. massive ethical dimensions once you get into <laughs> like, you know, making a film about someone, especially if you we didn't go down the road of getting a load of people in to tell you how great she is. No, because um, actually, yeah, that's another thing I wanted to bring up is structurally. It's not a traditional bio documentary. I was in the Q&A the other day and you said you wanted it to be what she stood for, what she's about, as opposed to here's an A to Z of her, you know, her greatest hits and her journey. And so was that baked in from the very beginning once you decided that you wanted to take this project on? Yeah, we decided pretty much from the get-go that we didn't want to make a traditional biopic or, you know, folkumentary. But it's interesting, there was kind of a an aesthetic decision we made and a kind of filmmaking decision we made but it was also backed up then by the fact that when we started to do any research we found that there's no archive of Shirley anyway so if you want to try and tell that traditional more kind of BBC4 story of a, of a singer of a musician there's not top of the pops clips that you can show or her recording an album in 1975 there's nothing there's basically two bits of archive that exist and we use both of them in the film it is unusual for a documentary but actually the great music documentaries don't really rely on you being a fan of the music like the Nick Cave documentary, the first yeah, one, yeah. it sort of almost doesn't have any Nick Cave music in it, yeah. you know, yeah. which is really interesting. You know, it's another film about Sussex, funnily <laughs> enough, on, on, on some level. Yeah. Searching for level. the Sugar Man, you know, you don't have to be a fan of Absolutely Rodriguez's not. music. Yeah, yeah. Because nobody was. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly, you know, it's the story. Mm -hmm. It was kind of the same intention with Way of the Morris, really, that on one level, if you make a film about Morris dancing or you make a film about Shirley Collins, you kind of, I think, 
think to yourself, well, look, the Morris dancers will watch it anyway, mm -hmm. regardless of what you've made. The Shirley Collins films will watch it anyway, regardless of what you've made. So your task as a filmmaker, in a way, is to try and make a film that is going to appeal to somebody who's never heard of Shirley Collins or has never heard of Morris dancing, or if they have, hates Morris dancing. That's always been our kind of raison d'etre, in a way, is to make, try and make films that are broader in their scope than just trying to you know, appease a pre-existing fan base. Yeah. Going back to the um, archive footage, of which, as you mentioned there, there isn't any, and yet your film <laughs> is full of archive footage. <laughs> <laughs> are, we, are we allowed to talk about that? <laughs> it's this weird area of spoiler territory, which we've been really careful to um, preserve. There have been a couple of reviews that have... Uh, given it away already so I don't know uh, yeah I mean I think given the audience it's fine yeah it's fine to talk about it yeah I mean basically we wanted to take people on a journey back to 1959 and there was just like the <coughs> richest audio archive that you could dream of to work with you know hundreds of hours of field recordings in people's homes of like conversations about how they tune their guitar and what it used to be like when they were young and they used to play at dances and just, you know, all their friends in Kentucky who split their husbands' heads open with axes and been sent to prison after years of abuse and then come out and done it again. And just the most fucking and amazing. wrestling. The whole like, half an hour thing was somebody talking about a wrestling match, a yeah, wrestling yeah, yeah. match. Or talking about people who worship with snakes and then get bitten and die. And, <laughs> and just, you know, but people who really are almost so imbued in this music kind of thing that it's not like a thing, it's that they are the music, do you know what I mean? People, yeah. people who knew Jesse James, people whose like uncle had been with Bob and Charlie Ford when they killed him, and you know, just people who you write folk songs about rather than people who played folk songs. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, that, that, that's saying? the key thing about that Lomax stuff and why it's so important and why it's so mesmeric and, and primal is that, you know, the people that they recorded are not professional musicians. They're not doing it as a performance. They're not doing it for money. These are people who are carrying on a, a centuries of tradition of just singing songs, playing fiddle, on your porch after you spent the day working in the field. You know, it's that idea of folk music in its purest sense being an oral tradition that's been passed down. And you know, I know this song because my grandpappy taught it to me. Yeah. I know this tune because my daddy taught it to me. It's called Bonaparte's Retreat. I have no idea who Napoleon Bonaparte <laughs> is, which is who the song is named after. And it doesn't matter. I know how to play it, and this is how it goes. I mean, it was really important to us for the film because there is this kind of sort of substrand of the film, which is the story of English music being taken to America by the pioneers and the early settlers, being preserved there while in many cases dying out over here. Mm -hmm. And then in the kind of late 19th and 20th century, it being rediscovered and almost kind of repatriated back to England and Shirley being like a physical embodiment of that, have physically gone to the places where these people are singing these songs, mm -hmm. have learned them from them and then brought them back and sung them herself. You know? yeah. When she started singing again, we made sure that one of the songs on the album, well, two of the songs on the yeah. album in fact, were songs that she'd first heard there and she'd collected from there, one of which had never been sung again before in any form so there's a kind of bigger story there and that's one of the things we're most proud of I think that yeah. there are a couple of songs on the album that are there because we kind of nagged her or kind of pushed her in the direction of them partly because we knew it was going to help us yeah. narratively <laughs> that we could yeah. you know yeah tie all those things do together. a little circular you know yeah. narrative with it yeah, yeah but to go back to your actual question <laughs> we had to transport people to this place where she went and so we had this incredible audio archive 
there were loads and loads of pictures they took on a black and white stills camera and there was a point where we were going to use those and do something with those and then we already do a lot of juxtaposing that audio with English landscapes which actually works really nicely and really beautifully and it's kind of a very simple thing because <coughs> you'd listen to the voices because you're, you're not presented with like a fast edit, you're presented with leisurely long shots of the English countryside and then against that you can listen to this voice from an obviously completely different place kind of thing. In a way that transports you really beautifully. Yeah. But we did also want people to see that place. So we just, the photos were just, partly that they weren't good enough, but it's mainly just the fact that there's only so long, you know, we're probably in America for 20 minutes of the film, 25 minutes of the film, maybe mm -hmm. even more. And you can't make people look at photos yeah. for that long. So we then thought, well, look, we've got these photos. People did have consumer video cameras at the time, you know, that you'd put a roll of beautiful 16 millimeter celluloid into mm -hmm. and then press the button and it would kind of whir until it ran out and then you'd wind it up again and it were until it ran out. And Alan Lomax had one of those, but infuriatingly for us, he didn't take it with him on the trip. <laughs> so we thought, let's just pretend he did take it, mm -hmm. and let's reconstruct each of the scenes in those photographs, and then let's video them. So that's what we did. You know. And what did you use to shoot those? One did of you, those. Yeah, 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 yeah. Vintage camera that <coughs> you had to wind up every now and again, or not yeah. wind up, because that kind of gave it a different energy. Yeah. As well, yeah, and there's yeah, yeah. So, you know when you're used to uh, shooting digitally, there's something so um, kinetic, visceral about shooting on film again. Mm -hmm. When you know you've got what is it, three and a half minutes in that cartridge, yeah. and the minute you press go, you're shooting the film. It's like I'm, ah, I'm burning, I'm burning film. It's like yeah. literal all those terms that people still use in filmmaking. You know, like you're burning film. We're, let's cut. We are reminded of oh, it's because it's actually used to be on film. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I've only got three and a half minutes here, and it's costing a lot of money. There's a real energy with that. But what was interesting about it is Rob ended up shooting quite a bit of that stuff yeah. because if you give one of those cameras to a, you know, a proper cinematographer, they're trying to frame it nicely and do their normal job. And it's like, no, no, it's got to look like you <laughs> know, an amateur is shooting it. Or Rob would occasionally kind of give the DOP a nudge <laughs> to kind of judder the camera a bit, stop it accidentally, don't wind it up properly, things like that, just to yeah. give it more of an authentic Open feel. the gate so it exposes badly. And, and there's a thing you can do where you kind of slip it off slightly so it's kind of double exposing itself as it films. So you kind of get slightly different shots on half of each of the negatives. And you open the thing and then it, you get a nice white flare in between oh, the two. It just, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just flares. beautiful, beautiful stuff to work with film. And, and you're just I mean, hoping you've got a hair in the gate. It's like, yeah. please <laughs> let there be a hair in the gate. Yeah, all, all the things that are a nightmare mm -hmm. to do with shooting a film are like a massive bonus for us, and, you know. So in a way, it's sort of all of the difficulties of shooting on film are removed. If you're trying to reconstruct home videos, you can just enjoy the things that film wants to do that when you're filming properly, you're trying to stop it from doing, yeah. you know? It wants dirt and it wants grit and it wants to be badly exposed and you need like a whole team there to stop it from doing that. So in a way, you're letting it do what it naturally wants to do. Do not tame the film. Let it, uh... <laughs> Those reconstructions are like some of my favorite parts of the film, they work beautifully with voiceover. And so I'm just curious as to why is, you, you mentioned this at the Q&A um, yesterday, that you feel morally ambiguous about presenting this as reconstruction or not. So at the end of the Q&A, you're like, who knew that was reconstruction? Who knew at the beginning? Yeah. Who knew at the end? I'm not morally ambiguous at all. We were very clear that we wanted people to think it was real for as long as humanly possible. Mm -hmm. The thing that I've been struggling with for 
the last few months is that we did that and we were like, fine, we'll do this as well as we possibly can. We'll cut it very carefully so there's nothing that gives it away, you know, and make it as immersive as it can possibly be. And then slowly over the course of it, we'll kind of let people figure it out. It's a very weird thing because, for example, there's a point there where there's a shot of someone against a brick wall and that's one of the first things that start giving it away. But actually, the reason there's a shot of a brick wall is because there's a photo of someone against a brick wall. <laughs> right. So they have brick, they did have brick America, walls in 1959. Yeah. <laughs> what your brain tells you America looks like and what it actually looked like are two different things, you know, it's, which is why I think that if you do see a TV movie set in 1975, everyone's wearing 1975 clothes and driving 1975 cars, when actually, of course, most people were still like wearing 1950s clothes yeah. and driving 1960s cars in 1975. <coughs> do you know what I mean? But then you see that and then you don't believe it. So the thing that I've kind of struggled with to do with that is basically when we did a test screening, we put in a very clear reveal, what we thought was a very clear reveal that this is archive, sort of two thirds of the way through the film, three quarters of the way through the film. Yeah. And a lot of people at the test screenings didn't get it. They didn't notice <coughs> it. And as a filmmaker, you should be in control of that process. You know, there's a film called Stories We Tell, which was definitely an influence on us by Sarah Polly, Polly, yeah. Sarah Polly. a Canadian film, yeah. great film, I think great it won film. an Oscar, it should have done anyway. But that film's got, this is a spoiler for anyone who hasn't seen it, but it's got reconstruction footage of her mum, that it's a similar thing in a way, you know, you don't know that it's reconstruction footage until she reveals it to you, she walks onto set during this reconstruction shot kind of thing, and it's very clear, and audiences usually groan because they want to believe so much that it's her. So, a lot of people felt cheated by it, Yeah, I think they? a lot of people felt oh, cheated, what? but, but actually... You? You've been lying to me, <laughs> filmmakers. But actually it was a beautiful thing, and it was beautifully done, and it's a, it's a lovely film. So we were presented with, right, we either have to do something really, really explicit here to make sure that everybody gets our intention, mm -hmm. which is like what we, in inverted commas, should have done. We just had long conversations about it. It's like, so some people are going to think, no, it's reconstruction from the start. You know, people who really know Shirley will know that there wasn't a camera on the trip. <coughs> there are people who think it's reconstruction, and then when we reveal it, we'll know that it's not reconstruction kind yeah. of thing. Then there'll be people who get to the credit still thinking it's reconstruction and then see the card saying this was reconstruction footage and then figure out it's reconstruction and then there'll be people there still are people who get all the way through the credits as well mm. and still don't believe that it's reconstruction footage still think it's real they've got imdb to go to to see the cast credit and then maybe yeah, they yeah. will finally yeah. see yeah. that yeah. yeah so it's like as filmmakers can we allow that level of disparity in our audience mm -hmm. to exist or is that not doing our job properly? And um, you know, I've really, really struggled with that. But basically, we decided that the film worked, whichever of those journeys you go on with it. Yeah. And we decided to let that happen. You know, and I don't know if that was brave or stupid, <laughs> but I think it's interesting anyway. Yeah. You know, because it would have been very easier for us to make it absolutely clear. We always shot reveals in everything we're doing. So yeah. if we were to go back through the yeah. rushes, off the top of my head, there's a shot of me stood with an iPad at one point talking to the guy who's playing the banjo. There's shots of Rob looking round a door into the lens. And they just felt a bit too explicit and kind of yeah. too much of a reveal rather than allowing the story of the film to continue to flow. A kind of a, a destruction but as well. But yeah, or yeah. kind of a big kind of bombshell, a kind <laughs> of ha-ha, we've been lying to you. It's there if you want yeah. to see well, it. Well, I mean, basically, the reveal that we do have, people that want to see it, is very poetic and was in our minds from the start. This is a massive spoiler, by the way. 
because it kind of involves young Shirley and old Shirley coming back together into the same body as she comes to the end of her recording process it's yeah. like she reclaims her young self kind of thing so yeah. we thought that having that there without having to reveal if it was reconstruction footage beforehand which we would have had to do was actually better than making sure that everyone went on the same journey through the film yeah you know? we've talked about this a lot and i think on one level people want to believe that it's real because even some of the early test audiences we did with people who know shirley really well big fans of us and in fact kind of almost family of Shirley would watch this stuff watching our reconstruction going okay well I know there isn't any of this so I know this isn't real but this is real isn't it <laughs> is, is this real no I know it's not real there isn't any I know this isn't real but it's real <laughs> so on one level uh, yeah I think there's an element that people really want to believe yeah. that it's real that it exists and on one level we have done our job then in that it, it does seem to be immersive enough and to transport people for the purposes of the story of the film it takes people to 1959 America you know that was what we were trying to do yeah. allow people to go on that journey the ballad of um, Shirley Collins played twice at the London Film Festival which is where we are right now recording this interview and this coming Friday it's got its um, official release so where will people be able to see it and also I know there's something that's coming up before Friday um. well there's two preview screenings this week so there's one on Monday which is sold out with Stuart Lee in conversation with Shirley after the film and there's one on Wednesday the 18th Wednesday the 18th where Shirley's singing at Picture House Central and then it's out from Friday and it's kind of on everywhere so it's the first week it's on a five London venues and it's on in Manchester Liverpool York Hastings, Edinburgh, did you say? Edinburgh, Belfast, um, Belfast, and that's just the first week. With little films like this, you do a staggered release. So we actually have got a very heavy first week for us. Our films usually are much more staggered than that. But actually, there's screenings up till February. And in terms of London, there's two more dates. The 24th at the Genesis, we're doing a very unfolk night with John Robert and Membranes doing the Q and A, and then the phenomenally brilliant Rumbling Fur doing a live set afterwards. And then on Sunday the 29th, Stuart Lee's doing another Q&A, this time with me and Tim rather than Shirley at the Rio. Mm. Oh, and then the 25th is Crouch End Art House, which Brilliant. is my local yeah. um, cinema. Yeah, North London. So Londoners. I'm doing a Q&A there, <coughs> yes, for the North London gang. It's on all week in Crouch End and at Picture House Central. And where can everybody get to have a look at these dates online? At ShirleyCollinsMovie.com. Cool, and I'll make sure I'll link out to that, of course. And then also, you know, the obvious final question is, um, although it might be too early to ask this, um, you know, what else do you guys have coming up? You know, not that you don't have your hands full right now. Well, <laughs> we've been thinking about it a lot because we know it's, it's a question that comes up often in Q&As when you show a film, what's next? And so we've tried to prepare for that question and we do, we do have some ideas, but there isn't anything concrete. Yeah, I, mean, I, mean, we, we, I think it's going to be continuing in a similar vein you know yeah. what for whatever reason it wasn't really what we designed for ourselves yeah. we seem to have ended up making films about folkloric things in England and what we're <coughs> thinking we might want to do as a kind of tip to where we've begun to start going with Shirley Collins is to maybe delve a bit deeper into America the next time around yeah cool. but keep hold of those English roots yeah the one thing we haven't talked about is the significance of this film culturally and politically at this moment in time you know and it's, it's a vision of England you know and I think that's something people are searching for at the moment you know and it's a positive vision of England kind of thing so the project that Tim's alluding to we won't go into it in too much detail but basically it's taking the kind of the stuff 
to do with the early pioneers taking the music over to America and taking that back further and exploring the vision of America that Europeans had. A time when Europe was looking outwards and to a future, to a utopian possibility, you know. The irony being that that utopian possibility ended up with the wholesale slaughter of an entire race of people. So there's a flip side to that. Nothing's ever black and white, which is interesting. But contrasting that time when there was a kind of outward looking, open, positive view from Europe to now where everyone's shutting borders and cutting people off and turning migrants away, you know. And the difference between an emigrant and an immigrant, which I think is something that we are quite keen to explore through that context. So that's spectacularly vague. But very but, intriguing. Yeah. So yeah, but we hope to see you here in about 2023. <laughs> <laughs> and we can talk about this project as it's come to fruition or not, or turned into something else completely. Cool. Fantastic. Well, it'd be great to catch up with you guys, Rob and Tim. Thank you for um, coming to meet me in person so I can actually recognise you now. And um, yeah, come in on the podcast. Um, it was a pleasure to speak to you both. Thank, Thank you, you so Mara. much. Thank yeah. you so much. It's been lovely. Thanks for joining us on the Director's Notes podcast once again. We'll be back next week with an interview with director Jean-Stéphane Sauvier for his brutally real Thai prison boxing feature, A Prayer Before Dawn. In the meantime, be sure to swing by directorsnotes.com where we bring you more highlights and discussions from the filmmakers who were part of this year's London Film Festival. And if you still have some time on your hands, then a review and rating for Director's Notes in your favourite podcasting app is always appreciated. Speak to you soon. Thank you.